This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today here at Build is Daniel Roth, Program Manager for ASP.NET and Blazor. How are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, we have some really exciting things to talk about. Uh, there was a lot of announcements here at Build around the ASP.NET Core ecosystem and even something brand new called Blazor, which we'll get into. Yeah, that's right. So let's get started with some of the amazing bullet points that were uh, demoed here at Build. Uh, the ASP.NET Core 2.1 release is imminent, so uh, we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, we do. So uh, we actually just shipped the release candidate. So two days ago, we pushed .NET Core 2.1 RC, and ASP.NET Core 2.1 RC is included in that. Uh, and so that's available to be downloaded and used. Uh, it's actually a go-live release, so if you want to use it in production, uh, you're more than welcome to, uh, with the understanding that when we ship the final version probably sometime later this month, assuming everything goes smoothly, uh, that you just update to the, to the stable release. Excellent. And uh, there's a lot of uh, nice features in there that save developers a lot of time. I know uh, there's some that developers everywhere were waiting to get, and then there's some that are personal favorites of yours and mine as well. So uh, we'll talk about some of those. Uh, so what, what are some of the, the absolute like, key features that people are looking for? So in ASP.NET Core, uh, the first big one, I would say, is SignalR. So if you're doing real-time web scenarios, we now have an ASP.NET, ASP.NET Core port of SignalR available for, for you mm -hmm. to use. It's, it's been in the works, actually, for a little while. Like It's been gone through several uh, pre-releases, so probably not uh, too surprising that that's, uh, that's been worked on. But the fact that it's now shipping is, is pretty exciting. So if you have connected client scenarios where you need to be able to push content from the server down to the browser, or you want to broadcast messages from the server to a bunch of connected clients, uh, that is now available in ASP.NET Core 2.1, and it's available in the RC to, to try out. So if you haven't seen SignalR before, if you're new to it, uh, so the idea is we're using the server to push data to the client without the client having to interact with that page. So we can do things like push stock tickers and live uh, data down, uh, build real-time chat clients and things like that. And um, there, there was a lot of interest in this because I went to the session here at Build, uh, there had to be a couple hundred people in it. Um, it was pretty packed. Pretty big audience. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's, a lot has changed since the last version. So it's been, it's, uh, it is a completely rewritten? It is um, significantly improved, I guess I would okay. say. I mean, there will be a lot about it that feels very familiar. Like you're still building SignalR hubs. Mm -hmm. You still have a connection model underneath uh, the hub model. Uh, so that will feel very much the same. But of course, we couldn't just do a straight port. We had to add new features and make it better. Uh, so there's a lot of new stuff in this SignalR uh, implementation. So like, for example, the client uh, has been completely rewritten, particularly the, the JavaScript client is now, uh, it has no dependency on jQuery. Uh, oh, that's a bad word these days. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know why. But. I guess so. Uh, it, uh, that makes it also much more performant and smaller, mm -hmm. more compact. There's also a TypeScript version of it. Um, that's available on NPM today for you to, to go and try out. Uh, other things that uh, we did, the, the protocol now for SignalR is completely open, and mm -hmm. it's uh, documented on, on GitHub. 
Uh, so if you don't like our client, you can go implement your own. You can just read the spec for the protocol and implement whatever client library you'd like to use. Um, it has uh, transport extensibility. So in addition to like having a plain text JSON transport protocol for, for SignalR, we now have a binary uh, transport that's based off of message pack. So that hopefully will squeeze out even more performance for, uh, for SignalR-based scenarios. Uh, there's streaming support, and uh, we also really simplified the um, the, ho the scale out model. So when you want to have like you know 10,000 or 100,000 connected clients that you're all dealing with, uh, the model that you use for scale out has been dramatically simplified. Or or actually like don't do that at all and just use the new Azure uh, SignalR service. Um, we now have uh, SignalR as a service available on Azure, and it's actually completely based on ASP.NET Core SignalR. Um, so when you ha write a like a SignalR hub. Uh, using ASP.NET Core, you change like, I think it's like one line of code, and then you can publish it to the Azure Container, uh, sorry, not the Azure Container Service, the Azure SignalR Service. And now you can handle as many clients as you need to handle, whether it's 100 up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of clients. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw the Azure SignalR Service demo, and, and I was immediately impressed. I'm like, this is a great idea. Uh, this is something I can see a lot of people using. Um, having, having the ability to scale those resources and know that it's globally available. You can push it to, um, you know, local servers where where people are um, are using that app. You know, their application on the other side of the world. Uh, all those benefits you get from Azure now you have with SignalR. So that's that's uh, right. And I mean, powerful. it's non-trivial to do that, handle that scale out. When you're remember when you're dealing with dealing with these connected client scenarios, you have a, a connection for each client. It's not like they're sending you requests and then going away. They're just hanging out there, and so you got to make sure you handle those resources correctly. That's that's non-trivial, and uh, the the SignalR service just makes it easy. You just have a slider bar basically, and you can scale it up as high as far as you want to go. And what's uh, what's nice going back a little bit to what you previously mentioned, we talked you know about the bad word. The, the the library that we shall, shall not, not be named. <laughs> <laughs> JQuery Spy is a great library. I think so. Lots too. of people still use it I and think love so it. Too. Um, <laughs> but there's uh, you know a, a generation shift, I guess, going on where uh, that it's it's not the in vogue thing to do. So uh, decoupling from that, um, while uh, you could still use jQuery if you want to, uh, which is fine in my opinion. Uh, but it opens you up to other frameworks now, which is nice. Yeah. So that's that's one thing that's really nice about that decoupling is we have uh, the ability to use React, uh, Vue, and of course uh, everybody's favorite Angular. Uh, quite a bit of uh, Angular fans in the SignalR session. So um, I think you said you you weren't able to catch that, uh, but like I said, there was several hundred people in there, um, and Damian Ed Edwards was pulling the crowd. And he says, you know, how many people are using Vue? And, you know, eh, a couple hands went up. Uh, how many people are using React? And a good amount of hands came up. How many people are using Angular? Like half the crowd's hands went up. Oh, I was, was an Angular surprised. crowd. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is a very heavy uh, Angular crowd. And then there's another topic we'll get to here in a little bit. Blazor, he mentioned that as well. He said, how many uh. people would like to see this demo in Blazor? And it was kind of like the opposite of the Angular hands went up. Oh, the <laughs> so it was like the rest of the room. I was like, okay, this is an interesting set of metrics. Uh, even though the sample size is a little biased, um, it's still very interesting. That is yeah. funny. Anyway, you actually mentioned Angular and React and those uh, JavaScript clients. 
Um, you know, another, another new thing in ASP.NET Core 2.1 is we, we have templates uh, built into ASP.NET Core for yes. setting up apps that use Angular, use React, use React plus Redux. Um, we actually did a, a reworking of those templates to be uh, CLI friendly. So if you're using like the Angular CLI or um, the uh, Create React App CLI for, for React applications, the ASP.NET Core templates that are included in the box now work seamlessly with those uh, command line interfaces. So that's yes, a yes, nice little do. enhancement for, the, for those folks using those, those particular JavaScript libraries. I'm glad you mentioned those because they're, they're extremely handy. Um, and I don't think people quite know they're there yet. Because they are new to begin with. And uh, as you said, you updated something that was already brand new and made it even better. Uh, but I, I don't think the general public is aware that they even exist. And they're really great for people that are kind of onboarding into those ecosystems. And maybe they, they've used Angular JS before, but not Angular 2 plus, you know, Angular um, which is now on version, I think, 6. Yeah, I think 6 um, just came out. So these things have some pretty steep learning curves to them. And what these templates do is they, they offer you a way to get started and actually be productive while you're learning. Uh, they abstract some things away and they don't hide them completely, but they abstract them to where they're, they're usable to a .NET dev. Um, things like Webpack and um, live or hot reloading and things like that, hot module reloading is all taken care of and configured for you. If you need to update that stuff and you know find out you know what those configurations are, they're provided for you and you can edit those. They're not hidden, um, but it's a way to like kind of ramp up your your abilities very quickly. Yeah, get started super fast. It's just file new project. Um, I, I I know when I've gone to look and learn like React or Angular, these, these frameworks, it's, it's always been interesting to me that the, often the tutorials that I'll go through or the YouTube videos or whatever that describe how to get started with these frameworks, I, I end up spending the first like half an hour of them, them just explaining <laughs> how to set up a project, like introducing the, the setup steps. Whereas with these templates, file new project, F5, you are ready to go. Webpack is set up, hot module reload is set up, TypeScript compilation is set up, source mappings is already set up. So you can like debug into your TypeScript in the browser. It's all just done. Then you just use it and start writing your application, which is great. Yeah, it's uh, quite a complex configuration to get a Angular app up, up and running. And um, even if you're using the Angular CLI, which the new templates are compatible with, is one of the major features of them. Um, you, if you run the Angular CLIs, like those abstractions are kind of in place and they're kind of hidden from you. Uh, you have to do a uh, in, uh, an eject. So you have to say NPM or, or is it N NG something eject? And uh, it'll actually eject those configurations mm. um, with the uh, .NET templates. That stuff's not hidden away. It's just it's in the folders in the in the project, and you just have to know where to look. So they're they're a great getting started experience. And um, if listeners are interested in this, uh, please let us know at feedback.telerik.com because we are piggybacking off of some of these. Um, the we don't have the updated versions that are in 2.1 ready yet. Um, but it's something that we're, we're looking into, and uh, this is actually something I built personally. Um, we're taking the Angular template, uh, the exact same one that you guys built. We're adding our UI components to it and the configurations needed to get those running. So you can essentially say, file new Kendo UI Angular project. Oh, nice. And now you've got not only the getting started experience that your Microsoft team has built here, but... Uh, all of the rich UI components, you know, data grids and charts and drop-down boxes and all those things are available to you. That's uh, great. So if you you have a Kendo UI license, you 
you have immediate access to building ASP.NET core applications with an Angular front end uh, with a nice templating experience. Is that is that a Visual Studio extension or is it yes, done it as is. a is it? Do you also provide it as a um, like a? I, I know with .NET Core you can you can pr create like template packages and ship them as NuGet packages. Is it is it something that you can also use like on a Mac? Like can you like .NET install the Kendo UI template and use it there, or is that something that maybe still still looking at? No, actually that's the approach we took. So sweet, um, that's great. <laughs> I've been following this very closely, so I, I kind of pioneered this with our engineering team, and uh, I, I built the package up and I sent it to them, and they they uh, went through the effort to uh, make it a CLI package. Um, and then from the CLI uh, tooling, they made the uh, extension for the Visual Studio Marketplace. Very nice. So yeah, you cool. can get started on any machine with it. Um, and uh, if people are interested in this uh, as uh, Kendo UI users, uh, let us know so we can uh, work with the brand new versions that uh, Daniel's team has put together that are compatible with Angular CLI so we can add that functionality for you guys as well. Cool. So what other great things? We're talking about so many amazing things already. <laughs> what else do we have? It's like Christmas Day. Yeah, so, so we talked about SignalR. Let's see. Other things that are new in this release, um, Razor class libraries is an interesting feature. You can now take your Razor files, your CSHTML files for like mm -hmm. MVC views or Razor pages. You can put them in a class library instead of a web app project, just a normal class library. And then you can compile them into a reusable library. Then mm -hmm. you just reference that library from a, a web app project and you can use that uh, user interface as a reusable library. You can even package it up as a NuGet package, uh, put it on NuGet.org. Other people can install your NuGet package and, and get that UI. And what's really nice also is you can you can override the pages and views that are in that library from your application. So if you nice. like define nice. the same page, or maybe maybe it has a partial view that it uses inside the UI inside the Razor class library, uh, you can define that partial inside your app and customize what you want that partial to look like, and get a customizable version of that pre-packaged, pre-built uh, user interface. So I've I've worked with other frameworks that have had this override mechanic, and it's very very handy. So uh, some of those examples might be WordPress, Joomla, you know, some of the PHP things do this where, you know, you have this uh, hierarchy of um, HTML files in those instances or PHP files. In our case, it would be CSHTML files. We add those to the correct path in the system and they override the functionality and we can customize it till our heart's content. Yeah, very, very similar idea. Yeah. And in fact, we, we decided to use this technology our, ourselves. So in the past, when you set up an ASP.NET Core project or even an ASP.NET project, and you selected that you wanted authentication support in the, the project, mm -hmm. you would then get like really like, I think like a hundred files with a couple thousand lines of code that would set up user interface code for logging in users, registering new users, allowing users to manage their accounts, uh, password recovery flows, all that, all that user mm -hmm. interface code just sort of got dumped into the project, right? Uh, which is great because that meant you had complete flexibility and control uh, over that code. Uh, but it meant you had to own all that code. If there was any problem with it, it was, it was your problem. Uh, and it wasn't a way for us to update it. So you're talking about when we do file new project and then we check that authentication. Check the checkbox. Yeah, you select one of the authentication options. And then one of the options was like individual user accounts. Mm -hmm. And it gives you just a whole bunch of code for, for logging in users and managing users. And if, after, if you didn't check that checkbox and you created an, an application and then afterwards you realize, oh, wait. I, I want some authentication support. I want some identity support in my app. 
Well, there's not, there wasn't really a good way to do that. You basically had to create another project, check the checkbox, and then copy all the code over or Absolutely. either one way or the other. Been there, done that. <laughs> so, so what we did instead is we took that user interface code and we just pre-built it into a Razor class library. And so now you have an identity.ui oh, okay. library that you can just add to any project. You, when you check the checkbox now, we just add that library for you and wire it up. If you um, didn't check the checkbox, you can just add it later. And you can customize the, the UI still in the library by overriding uh, specific pages. And in fact, we have a uh, identity scaffolder now that you can uh, use to scaffold yes. individual pages. Like you can override the login page or override the, the, the logout page. Um, that uh, helps you like figure out exactly which pages are available so you can figure yeah. out how to override them. Because you said there were potentially hundreds of files in this package. There's quite a few. Uh, so we're, we're probably not going to memorize every location of these no, files. No, no. And you don't need to. There's a, we have a user interface for this in Visual Studio. If you just right-click on your project, say, add new, add new item, and specifically add a scaffolded item. That's the, that's okay. the menu item you want to select. That will bring you into the scaffolding system. Select identity. And then when you do that, a, a dialogue will pop up with basically a checkbox and a file path for every single file that's in the identity UI. And you just select the ones that you want to override, and uh, you're good to go. Uh, if you have a new project where you haven't added identity before at all, you can use that same scaffolder to add the sort of integration code for the default identity UI, and it will just basically enable identity in your application for you. Uh, that's, that's super handy and gets you like off the ground running. No, uh, I know I've, I've been down that road before. Uh, this is something that uh, a lot of line of business app uh, developers use internally, especially uh, when you're, you're trying to hook in uh, your authentication system at work and, and get people logged into your app. Uh, it's super helpful. So we're interested to see like what the community comes up with in terms of UI libraries, like what, what, what other usable, interesting usable pieces of UI uh, people build and share. I mean, obviously, we're using this ourselves, and we hope that other people will as well, and then share the work that they've done. And, and again, I, uh, I hate to beat the feedback.telerik.com drum, but if anybody has anything they, on their wish list uh, where they come up with an idea that they, they want to see in their uh, products from us, uh, let us know at feedback.telerik.com. Uh, so we, we'd like to know what, what you guys are looking for as well. Uh, and of course, uh, anytime... Uh, we have uh, feedback like that, and uh, we need support from the framework itself. We can feed that data back to your team, Daniel, and, and try to uh, get some uh, some back and forth going uh, on these ideas. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, we have the Razor uh, stuff as a library, and um, we have a lot of other really cool features with uh, Razor um, coming. Um, we also have a lot of back-end tweaks being done. Um, I saw a lot around web API, a lot of talk about web API and some really cool things with uh, returning action results and some benefits that we get from some new features there. Yeah, so you know, a little, it helps to have a little history on what we did with ASP.NET Core. Like what, when we built ASP.NET Core, we really wanted to have a unified web framework. Um, ASP.NET we built several different frameworks on top of ASP.NET, and they were kind of, kind of their own silos. Like we had MVC, we had ASP.NET Web API, we had SignalR, mm -hmm. we had web pages. When we built ASP.NET Core, we really wanted to make these, these different patterns part of a unified web framework story. So when we, uh, we built it, we took MVC and we took Web API and we thought, well, let's, let's make these things really the same. And they both have controllers. Uh, they both have action methods. They both had filters. Mm -hmm. Let's make it the same infrastructure under the covers. 
Uh, when we did that, there were some programming, programming model differences that we had to make a choice. Like, well, by default, which way is this going to work? Is this going to work the MVC way or is it going to work the Web API way? And pretty much for ASMIC core, we generally did the MVC way for a lot of the patterns, which was fine. But it meant that for Web API scenarios that often you had to... Uh, yeah, ended up with a bit more verbose code than maybe you would like. You have to mm -hmm. add attributes in a lot more places, particularly if you want to do things like build a, a really descriptive web API that that surfaces well in things like you know a Swagger or Open API specifications. You have to you know label your 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 action parameters as what's coming from the body, what's coming from routes, what's coming from query parameters, what the return type is. That that all ended up being additional metadata on top of your action methods instead of the the decode just naturally describing itself. So what we did in 2.1 is we introduced a Web API specific convention. And the way you apply it to your Web API controller is you just add a single attribute, uh, API controller at the top nice. of your controller, and it then applies all of these conventions across your um, that, that controller. So for, for example, if it's a complex type parameter in your action method, we'll assume that that's coming from the body. If you have a simple type parameter in your action method that its name matches the name of a route parameter, then we'll assume that's coming from the path, from, from, from the route. Okay. Everything else we assume is, is from the query string uh, parameters. Uh, we'll take care of uh, checking whether the, uh, the, the, the model state is valid or not. And if it's not, we'll automatically return a 400 bad request. So you don't have to have that code in your action methods, things like that. And as a result, you're, 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 you have less code that you have to write. And mm -hmm. it's also just by default, much more descriptive, like the open API specifications that can be generated from that controller just by default without additional attributes is much better. It's much cleaner. It's much more accurate. Those open API specifications that used to be called Swagger, right? It did. Yes. That was the previous uh, name of it. Okay. So Swagger, very, very popular. Um, and uh, just kind of reminding listeners here, uh, we're at build. There's sessions going on, and when uh, when these things are being demoed, and somebody says, uh, you know, here's something for Swagger. Like you hear people standing up and cheering. Like people love this stuff. It's like, <laughs> great. Like it's yeah. got a lot of fans because it gives you uh, gives you API documentation. So you mm -hmm. like you can produce a, a user interface with docs for your API, so that your developers can consume your APIs. It gives you an easy way to test your APIs. It, it has just a lot of value, and it's a metadata format on top of which you can then build even other things. Like you can do code generation on top of it and generate clients. Um, these are actually all areas that uh, we plan to look at. Not. We're not, we didn't look at them. Well, we actually did look at them in 2.1, but we didn't, mm -hmm. didn't ship anything yet in 2.1. But for our, our next future wave, this is one of the themes that we're looking at is how can we make API development really seamless, really great, particularly when you're doing things like microservices in the back end and you have a whole bunch of APIs that you need to orchestrate and consume, um, making that really seamless. I think OPA, OPA, API specifications or Swagger docs and code generation are going to be a part of that story. Yeah. And uh, while we're talking about web requests and HTTP and, and uh, web API, uh, we have some other improvements around this area with the uh, HTTP client factory, which yes. is new part, uh, in this release. This is one of my favorite features. So when you're using the HP client, um, there are some things that I think are common gotchas when, mm -hmm. uh, for, for developers. Like one is you really actually need to reuse the HP client instances. You shouldn't just new them up and use them and then throw them away. Because what happens is on your server, you end up consuming like all of your socket connections and performance just tanks. Or, and you actually end yeah. up with uh, poor reliability. So you need to reuse them. Uh, you also uh, you want to manage 
uh, cross-cutting concerns for all of your HP clients. Like you have all these outgoing requests. Wouldn't it be nice if you had a request handling pipeline that you could set up for all those requests to handle things like you know reliability concerns, like like retry logic and you know exponential uh, back off uh, on that retry logic, uh, circuit breakers, you know those those types of things. HP Client Factory basically gives you HP Client as a service. In ASP.NET Core, nice. you can just ask the, the dependency injection container, the, IOS, the the container, to give you an instance of an HP client that has been set up as a service um, specific for either for your scenario or just cross-cutting for the whole application. You can manage your HP client instances and their configuration in a centralized way. Uh, so that's what it does for you. So you get better performance because you're reusing your HTTP client instances. You, they're much easier, easier to configure because all your config lives in one place. It's just sort of part of your uh, services configuration. Uh, and then you can set up these message handlers for outgoing requests. Like if you want to add uh, retry logic for all of your HTTP clients, you can do that in, in one place. And in fact, we, uh, we shipped a new package that uh, integrates with a fairly popular uh, resiliency library called Poly. Mm -hmm. um, Poly is a library for dealing with uh, resiliency and trans transient faults. It handles things like retries and circuit breakers and, and all, the, all that, those types of concerns. We give you a bunch of message handlers and extension methods that you can just add to the HP Client Factory and have that just get applied uh, across your application. It's pretty nice. Yes, it's really nice to see this uh, HTTP Client Factory get integrated because I know I've worked on projects where uh, I want to use HTTP Client but I'm not quite sure the best practices. And then I go to, you know, the greatest developer resource ever, Google and Stack Overflow. <laughs> and uh, the opinions vary pretty greatly on how you should implement these things. Should I use a using statement? Should I follow this pattern? And should I dispose of them at this time or another? And it's, it's nice to see the, the uh, factory kind of do that best practices for us and, and give us some guidance. It'll actually like uh, it helps you build strongly typed clients. Uh, like the one of the demos I showed uh, at Build earlier earlier this week was I wanted to build a, a, a GitHub client, a client mm -hmm. that goes and talks to the GitHub APIs. Uh, and what you can do is you can create a GitHub client yourself, and you can register it with dependency injection uh, through the HP client infrastructure. And it's called a type client. What 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 you do is you set up an HP client instance that's specific to that GitHub client. Like, for example, it has a very specific base address, the, the GitHub API base address. It, has, uh, it needs to have a very specific accept header. GitHub uses uh, the accept header to handle versioning, so you mm -hmm. need to set up the right accept header. Uh, GitHub also requires a particular user, user agent, so you can set that up as well. So you, you configure your GitHub client, and you say, this GitHub client should get an HP client that is configured in this way. And then in your GitHub client instant, uh, type definition... In the constructor, you you just get an HP client through dependency injection, and you use it, and it's already set up, it's ready to go, and you can then use that GitHub client through dependency injection wherever you need to use it. So it's really super nice. Yeah. What's so this this is just me brainstorming. I don't know if this is uh, a possibility or use uh, use case at all. But uh, when you, when you started telling me about this, uh, one thing that came to mind was well, maybe I could have. Uh, named factories I include with my SDKs. Like you gave GitHub as an example and all the things you had to do to set it up. What if I prepackaged those? Or at least I have a way of documenting it, like at the very least, right? I can have, you know, go to uh, mybusiness.whatever.com and, and you know, I have my documentation for how to set up a client factory for my service. Uh, that's one thing I could do. But what if I could just ship those to you and you could use them out of the box, like already pre-configured? 
Yeah, you, you could build libraries with clients in them that register themselves as services and register the HP client configuration that they need mm -hmm. as an HP client service. And then the application can just pick up that functionality through dependency injection. That's yeah. it's a really nice ecosystem play, actually. I know I know our company has cloud services uh, like convey uh, back end as a service and things like that. Uh, so it's an interesting concept I, I need to go talk to some people about because I can see people just pulling in these things and not having to write all that HTTP client uh, logic. And you, know, you could just point it, you know, point it at your uh, your service and then consume it through an object and just write code like you want, you know, solve the problems you want to solve instead of doing all the ceremony. That's right. Uh, it's, it's also probably worth mentioning that the HTTP client in .NET Core to that one has gotten a major upgrade. Like it's been completely rewritten under the covers to be a fully managed implementation. I think mm -hmm. before it had a, a libcurl dependency, uh, but it's been completely rewritten now in, in managed code and it is blazingly fast. Like the, the, they're saying it is 10 times faster than the old HP client that we oh, had wow. in .NET Core, yeah. which is amazing. Uh, it leverages a bunch of new runtime features that are specific to .NET Core, the, you know, things that are, were done in the .NET Core runtime that enables that performance. So, so definitely check that out. Like the, if, you're, if you need even more throughput out of your HP clients, uh, that should now be possible with .NET Core 2.1. Yeah, performance has been a uh, uh, heavy uh, hitting subject here uh, at the conference. So we're, we're hearing uh, roadmaps for .NET Core 3, and uh, there's significant performance improvements there. And then uh, in ASP.NET uh, Core 2.1, there's performance improvements there. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the uh, .NET stack is looking like a very performant one. Performance is something we care deeply about. Um, already, even with before we shipped 2.1, uh, .NET Core and ASP.NET Core is very fast. Like mm -hmm. if, you look, if you go, there's a, a particular benchmark that we use that compares all of the open source uh, stacks against themselves. It's called Tech Empower. And on that, uh, the, the, even the, the public Tech Empower numbers that have already been published, uh, ASP.NET Core and .NET Core compares very well against other stacks. Like we, we well ahead of, of you know, uh, the other popular frameworks like Java and, and Node, um, much higher uh, just raw throughput of, of the server. Even when you start to throw in things like uh, dispatching logic, like if you throw MVC, into the picture mm -hmm. and run the same benchmark. It's still faster than the, the same the same code written in like like Node or, or, or Java, which is amazing. But in 2.1, things get even better. Like for even for those low level benchmarks where you're you know you're trying to churn out like millions of requests per second, just churning out Hello World as fast as you can. We are about 10% faster in the 2.1 the release for those micro benchmark, benchmark scenarios. But what's really exciting is there's, a, um, there's another benchmark, uh, still tech empower, but it's, it's more of a real world scenario where you're actually mm -hmm. like hitting the database and you know, doing things that are more like what you'd actually do in an app. The, the micro benchmarks are just basically show, telling you how much overhead there is in the underlying server. Whereas these real world scenarios are really t giving you a better picture of, well, how is this actually going to behave in my application. Mm -hmm. And we didn't actually do very well in those benchmarks in previous releases. But in 2.1, we've made a whole slew of improvements and the performance jump is like over 100%. And we blow other stacks like Node out of the water now on like the, the Fortunes benchmark. Those numbers haven't been pu uh, published yet. 
But internally, what we do is we have literally the exact same hardware that Tech Empower uses for for their uh, okay. their their, te- their uh, benchmark runs, and we just take, it's all all of the benchmark code is open source for all those different stacks. So we run all of those benchmarks regularly and do comparisons, and we are looking very good. So we're very excited actually for the next round of Tech Empower numbers to come out, so that people can see that. So when you when you talk about performance testing, it makes me think unit testing and functional testing. So we have one more feature that helps us with functional testing that's been added. Uh, so we have we now have a way to generate um, an HTT, or sorry, what is the, the exact terminology here? I'm yeah, it would be of. an HP client that you wanna, you wanna call your web app, right? And, and you, like the, a functional test is something where you want to invoke your entire application. Like, you, like unit testing is great, you t- test different pieces in isolation, but sometimes you actually just wanna go issue a request, maybe it has specific headers on it, you wanna go through the whole middleware pipeline in the application, go through all the filters and MVC, hit the page, have it render, have the response come out, mm-hmm. see the headers and whatever's on the HTTP response uh, as a result of calling your application. Um, ASP.NET Core is flexible enough that you can host the whole app in memory. And we've had infrastructure in the past where you could get basically um, like a test host, which would give you an HTTP client that would let you call the whole app all the, all the way through in, in memory without ever touching the wire. Uh, it got a little hairy and tricky mm-hmm. once you uh, put um, Razor in the picture. If you actually were trying to call like a, a Razor page or an MVC view, okay. there, you're doing runtime compilation at that point. So there was a bunch of additional work that you had to do. You could, you could still do it, but it was, it was kind of hard. You had to go basically read a bunch of docs to figure out how to set it up. We've made that trivially easy in, nice. in ASP.NET Core 2.1. We give you a new web application factory that you can point at an ASP.NET Core application and then ask it, you know, give me an HP client for calling this application. And then you can call the whole app end to end, including rendering Razor pages and, and MVC views, get the response back and check the results. And that's actually how we do a lot of our testing internally. Like when we want to test that particular MVC features are, are working, we often will just write a little app and then use this infrastructure to invoke the app end to end, make sure the thing that comes back in the response is exactly what we, ex- we expect and, and we're good to go. So that Very should make cool. functional testing with ASP.NET Core much, much simpler. So I'm saving the best for last. Uh, we're gonna spend <laughs> the next uh, few minutes talking about one of my favorite projects that you're working on. It's experimental right now. Uh, let's talk about Blazor. Blazor, yes. Blazor is near and dear to my heart. So there, you know, I think there are probably a bunch of developers out there that are writing JavaScript today um, that maybe would prefer that they weren't writing JavaScript. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I say this, not that, it, that I think that JavaScript is bad in any way. I actually think JavaScript has come a, a, a long, long way. Like, I remember when I first started trying to write JavaScript, I don't know, maybe a decade ago or so, and being yeah. a little bit shocked and appalled at some of the limitations of JavaScript at that time. You know, function <laughs> scope variables, everything's in the global namespace. Ah, it was all before a lot of the improvements that happened in the, the JavaScript world. Now, the things that are really very modern, get very clean, there's TypeScript, there's modularity, there's all these really rich uh, frameworks. But even so, if you're a .NET developer or a Java developer or a Python developer or whatever, it's a, it's a different world. Like you have to go in and learn the JavaScript ecosystem to really get uh, competency Absolutely. with it. And wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just take your skill set and leverage it full stack when doing web development? Wouldn't it be nice if you could do full stack .NET development with C Sharp and have that just work? 
And then this miracle happened where the, the web community came together and defined this new spec that's called WebAssembly. Okay. And WebAssembly is basically a low-level bytecode. It's not something you write directly. Like, you don't author WebAssembly, unless, mm-hmm. unless you like writing assembly code, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what you like. But it's not intended to be used that way. It's something that you, it's a comp- compilation target. You take mm-hmm. code, you compile it to WebAssembly, and now it can run in any browser at native speeds on any platform. It is an open web specification. And so, like, if you have a, a C library that you want to use in the browser, you can compile your C code to WebAssembly, and now it runs in any browser at native speeds. It could be a, you know, a 3D rendering engine. It could be a piece of, you know, financial software, whatever. As long as you can compile it to WebAssembly, it can now run everywhere. And so, about a year ago, uh, some of the devs on our team started playing around with what it would be like to get a .NET runtime actually running on top of WebAssembly in the browser. And that's where Blazor came from. Uh, Blazor is browser plus Razor syntax for authoring UI components that run in the browser. Uh, where does the L come from? I don't know. I mean, blazingly fast, maybe, or laser beams. I don't know. You, you decide where the L came from. But the name of the project is Blazor. So we took a .NET runtime. Currently, we're actually using Mono, uh, which surprises uh, quite a few people. But Mono is actually the Microsoft-supported .NET runtime that we use for cross-platform client scenarios. So if you're using like Xamarin on iOS or Android or even on a Mac, that's all Mono under the covers. That's the runtime that's being used. Um, And so the Xamarin team took Mono and they brought it to another platform. They brought it to the WebAssembly platform. You can think of WebAssembly as just another platform and got that working. And then on top of that, we've been building a UI framework uh, inspired by the existing ones like Angular. We look at Angular and React and Vue and we try to take the the best parts of those while still wedding it with um, patterns that ASP.NET developers will know. Like we use Razor syntax as our component uh, authoring syntax. And you write C-sharp, you write Razor, you compile it into normal .NET DLLs, you download those into the browser, and they, they just work. So it's full-stack .NET development. Yeah, uh, the patterns are, are uh, very familiar to me. And it's kind of funny because these things totally come full circle. And um, every platform or ecosystem or you know, community that evolves around these things feels like they're the ones that invented it. So we've got... Like, uh, for example, um, it, you know, the MVV pa- MVVM pattern has been around for a long time. And I don't know who invented it. But, like, you talk to Angular developers, and it's like, oh, we have this pattern. And, uh, <laughs> and then we see it now in Blazor. It's a very similar MVV- MVVM-style pattern. And it's similar to React, too. Um, and when I think about it, I think back to, uh, you know, XAML development, and, uh, you know, with... Um, Things like uh, Silverlight and um, uh, what's the other WPF? Uh, they use a similar pattern as well, which were before Angular. So, like, we see this full circle of like <laughs> everyone taking was... credit for the same technology. <laughs> really, yeah. everything was invented in the '60s, exactly right? So, you know, it's point, all the same right? software that's, patterns. <laughs> that's a lot. Of, that's exactly where I was getting to. It was too. it was all small talk originally, right? Like, right. <laughs> I don't yeah. know where it originated first. The first time I saw it was uh, was in um, uh, WPF, and then now you see it in Angular, and that that's now in Blazor, and like this this nice MVVM style. Um, 
or MVP pattern, however you want to say it. It's so, all very similar. It's probably it's probably worth saying that we are trying to be fairly unopinionated mm-hmm. with Blazor in terms of the exact UI pattern that you decide to use. Okay. Um, we're, we're giving you a, a fairly lightweight component model. And then how you want to do MVVM or what state container, how, how you want to manage state in the application. Uh-huh. Uh, we're trying to let the community decide what patterns work best. It's a very similar strategy, I think, to what the React community did. Like React is also a very fairly thin component model. But then yeah. on top of it, you have things like Flux or Redux or whatever you know, that the community thinks is interesting at that time. We're, we're trying to do a very similar thing right now and not get too opinionated at that layer. But yeah. we do give you a very nice component model. You just to, to write a component, you just write a Razor file. You say, say what markup you like. You write your C-sharp code for what, uh, what state you'd like to manage. And all of your event handlers get written in C-sharp. Mm-hmm. And it gets compiled into a class, downloaded to the browser, and it, just, and it just runs. Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoy about it so far is when you see what, the example that you just explained, where you have some Razor and then some C-sharp functions to find, like it just clicks. Like, you're like, oh, I know how to use this tool now. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not, well, I need to learn how to use, uh, and I'm not, I'm not bashing any JavaScript development, anything like that, but it's, uh, and even if, if you're in those ecosystems and you love them, you have to admit there's a lot of learning curve involved. So uh, with Blazor, you're not worried about, oh, now I have to learn Webpack or whatever type of packaging bundling tool that's uh, hot this week, um, and I, I don't have to worry about all of all of those things because I have the MS build that I'm used to that I use for all of my other .NET applications. That's right. Um, and I I know people have to to configure some things with MS build, but I myself haven't had to like spend hours like managing some kind of manifest file for for the build system to actually work properly <laughs> like this is something that um i click a button in visual studio and it does for me yeah for, for the most part we handle those things for you like we have project mm-hmm. templates for blazer we actually have two we have a like a standalone project template that the output of the build is really just a bunch of static files like you get the dlls for your app you get the 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 web assembly runtime and then whatever you know, CSS files or whatever additional auxiliary files you have for the application. And then how those get served down to the browser is up to you. Like you can put them on whatever server you'd like and you can use it with whatever backend you'd like. If you want to use Blazor with uh, PHP on the backend, you can. If you want to use it with Node on the backend, you can. Um, we also have a um, ASP.NET Core hosted though, uh, version of that template uh-huh. where you get a Blazor project just like before. It produces a bunch of static files. But then the, the ASP.NET Core project, the server project, it handles actually serving those static files using the normal static file middleware. And then you have the benefit of being able to build web APIs using ASP.NET Core and consuming those APIs from your Blazor client. There's actually a third project that we put in that template, which is just a normal .NET standard class library. And it's referenced by both the client project and the server projects because you can share code. Like you can define domain uh, domain types that get used uh, by the web APIs on your server to serialize or deserialize data down to the client, and those same types can be used by the Blazor app. So you have the, that that symmetry. You can you can have validation logic that lives in that same library. It is it is truly full stack .NET development. Yeah, what's really cool about that shared logic is uh, pretty much anything in it that doesn't have a role in like say uh, uh, providing components or uh, talking to the DOM, those type of things you can pull in as a shared library is so any kind of poco objects uh those type of things um are, are very easy to consume 
uh, across both the front and back end. Yeah. Uh, so it makes like, like validation was an, an excellent example. Uh, who wants to write validation code twice, once in JavaScript and once, and once you know, in, in, .NET, in yeah. .NET. And then regardless of .NET running both on the client and the server, you still need to validate twice. Like uh, a lot, uh, I, I talk about Blazor a lot. Uh, it's it's like, like I said, one of my favorite uh, things that, that you guys are working on right now. And uh, one of the first questions people ask me is like, well, how is it for security? Because uh, I, don't, I don't know what their concern really is. But my response is always, while security is a concern on the client, like it's much more of a concern on the server. It's you true. never trust your client. That's like security 101 bullet one. Like you don't trust data from your client. It's probably worth addressing the security concern because I, I think I've gotten that question actually quite a bit. Because when we start talking about downloading DLLs, I think people aren't sure what expectation to, to mm -hmm. have. Blazor apps run in exactly the same sandbox that JavaScript does. You can't mm -hmm. do anything from a Blazor application that you couldn't do from JavaScript. Uh, conversely, anything that you could do from JavaScript, you can do from Blazor. Uh, WebAssembly-based code can call into JavaScript. There's JavaScript interop. So if you need to access some brow uh, browser API, mm -hmm. or even if you want to call into an existing JavaScript library and just leverage that existing code, you can do all that from a Blazor application. But the sandbox is the same. It's not. This isn't a like a, a plugin that you're installing into the browser that can right. do extra things that a normal web application can't. You're you're literally in the same sandbox. There's no plugin. There's no code translation happening. You're you get the same security guarantees that you would get if you're writing JavaScript code. So I think this might be a good example too, that you're not going to have a Blazor app that has access to your system registry. Exactly. Yeah, you it's have just you have happening. to live with the same browser limitations. So that, and that's that's kind of an interesting point. Like um, with Blazor and the, the .NET runtime that we're using, we are um, supporting .NET standard 2.0 libraries. So if you have any .NET library that only targets the .NET standard 2.0 surface area, then you can use that library in a Blazor application uh -huh. with the caveat that if that library tries to do something that fundamentally a browser can't do, like touch the registry or have arbitrary file system access, right. uh, you do get a, a effectively a platform not supported exception. So that's that's the way that works. You get, you are limited by what the browser can do. You have the security guarantees of the sandbox, but for the most part, most .NET standard libraries just work. So you do get to leverage the ecosystem. So I'm a developer advocate for Telerik Progress, and one of my jobs is to literally beat things up. So as soon as I heard about Blazor, you have a big bat that you just sit in your office. Like, yeah, I'm like I, I, my job is to kick the tires and find out, you know, how are developers really going to use this thing? And does it live up to promises it's making? Like, at least that's my approach to our own stuff. So when we release a library, that's something that I do immediately. Um, so when I saw Blazor um, at the MVP summit, uh, this was about two, two months ago ish. Um, it wasn't even released. Uh, it was it was public, but I had to build it myself. Right, uh, so immediately started playing with it. So I'm like, I'm gonna beat this up. It says it's <laughs> .NET standard 2.0. Uh, what can I build that's gonna entertain me and let me let me do some uh, uh, beating up of this thing? So I decided, uh, what if I can render Markdown? So I want to take and and I want to put a text box on the screen, type Markdown in it and parse the markdown into HTML. I don't know how to write a parser for that, and I don't want to spend the time learning how. 
Uh, so I go to NuGet. I search for a package. I'm like, oh, cool. There's already one that does this. Why would I spend time writing my own? And it is .NET Standard 1.3. So let's see if it works. So I download the package into my Blazor project, and it parses Markdown. Woo! It just works <laughs> out of the box. That's good. So yeah. it's like it's living up to that promise. The um, the Markdown package doesn't, you know, access things like the the system disk or anything like that. So it works just fine. Uh, it just works. This is this was the birth of of Blazedown, right? Yeah, Blazedown. Blaze down. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Because the web needed yet another online Markdown editor. Right? <laughs> uh, but right. again, it's it's more for exploration and experimenting. Uh, so it's a little personal project. But another thing that's really cool that um, you touched on, but I want to like get through to listeners is. Uh, the fact that it's running all on the client. I don't have any server-side code in this project, so I have the ability to push it to GitHub Pages and run a .NET app from GitHub Pages yeah. with no backend. We actually have some live uh, examples of that. If you go to, I think it's uh, blazer-demo.github.io, uh, that is a, a GitHub Pages-hosted Blazor application that you can go and try out and feel free to F12 and look at the wire and you'll maybe shocked to see DLLs being downloaded <laughs> into your browser. Uh, and that's, and that's okay. That's, that's, that's how it works. Um, it, it is, you mentioned expectations, you know, beating up things so to see if the, if the technology really matches expectations. Uh-huh. I think it's fair to say the expectations right now are fairly high around Blazor. So it's worth reminding folks that this is just an experimental project still. Like we're just exploring what the technology can do, what is Absolutely. possible. So far, we've been pleasantly surprised by how capable this technology is. But there still is a lot of stuff that needs to be worked on, that needs to be optimized and refined. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like there's no debugging in the, in the browser for Blazor right. applications yet. We have actually prototyped debugging where you can step into your C-sharp code from Chrome using the Chrome debugging tools. Uh, we have actually got that working in prototype, but it's not available in a, in a form that people can consume yet mm-hmm. uh, for people downloading and, and installing Blazor uh, right now. So that's, that's one area that we need to work on. Yeah. Um, I, the Mono team, actually, the, the folks on the Xamarin team have been uh, actively working on enabling that debugging support. Uh, I was talking with the dev a few weeks ago. Uh, he told me he was able to hit a breakpoint now and was able to step once and then after, if he stepped again, then it crashed. And I, yeah. I, I think one is one of our devs that then remarked, well, that's one big step, you know, <laughs> for, for debugging in Blazor. So it's coming, but it, you know, these are things that are being, basic things that you would expect to work that still need to be developed. Uh, yeah. Other things that we're working on, um, like Blazor, the, one of the promises of Blazor is that we, we expect to get phenomenal performance because it's fundamentally a WebAssembly-based technology. Mm-hmm. Right now, however, we, like when we download the DLLs into the browser, we're basically doing IL interpretation of, of those libraries, which is slow. Like In fact, it's, it's probably in, in many cases slower than executing the equivalent code in JavaScript. Uh, that said... Again, our, our friends on the Xamarin team are working on ahead-of-time compilation or AOT compilation for um, .NET applications where you can take all of the code in the app and compile it all to WebAssembly, not just the runtime, but the entire application. And we have high hopes that that will dramatically uh, improve performance of Blazor applications. Yeah. Uh, download size is another big area. Like We need to be able to trim down your app to be as small as possible so that the download payload is small and your apps start up really, really fast. These are all areas of investigation. That's why it's still experimental. It's, it's not a committed product yet. Don't, don't go plan your next critical app on this just yet. So, 
but uh, we're still pretty excited about it, and we have high hopes that all these things will get addressed. Just for the record, we have uh, the one and only Scott Hunter uh, <laughs> harassing making, us, making faces the through the window here at, at <laughs> uh, So I'm, I'm privileged to to have the. Uh, Live heckling from uh, one of the great Scots <laughs> at uh, Microsoft here. Um, so Blazor is, uh, again, one of my uh, favorite experiments that's happening now. Looking forward to see what you guys are doing with it. We should, we should probably tell people how to get it. Yes. So absolutely. go to net. B-L-A-Z-O-R.net. That's our like GitHub pages project site uh, mm-hmm. for, for Blazor. There's a Git get started button on the front page. Just click that and that will tell you what you need to install. Um, you'll need the .NET Core 2.1 SDK, the one that we just did a release candidate of. So make sure you get that and make sure you get the right version. Um, and then you'll need the latest stable release of Visual Studio. So Visual Studio 2017 Update 7. That latest, was actually just released a couple, like two days ago. This is, is when hot it's stuff, guys. Yeah. So you'll need that on top of Visual Studio, install the Blazor uh, Visual Studio extension. And then you'll have templates, you'll have tooling. The, you, you, know, you mentioned the, the, the IntelliSense and the, the tooling that you get for .NET applications. In Blazor, it, it's amazing. Like Even if you don't know .NET and C Sharp, I often feel like Blazor components almost write themselves because the completions are just that good. So, so that's what you need to go get and install. If you're on a Mac and you want to try this cross-platform or like mm-hmm. in Visual Studio Code, we also have the Blazor templates. It's just a NuGet package that you can install using the .NET CLI and .NET New, a Blazor application as well. And uh, what about the ASP.NET Core 2.1 bits? Yeah, so for that, just go download and install the .NET Core 2.1 SDK. It includes ASP.NET Core 2.1. Again, you should have the latest update of Visual Studio. You will need the latest the latest tooling. Um, and to down, the, I think the URL you can use for that is aka.ms slash .NET Core, D-O-T-N-E-T Core 2.1. And that'll bring you to the download page, download and install it, and you should be good to go. It installs side-by-side side with any other .NET Core version that you have on the machine, so you don't need to worry about this messing up an existing uh, dev, dev work machine. Uh, it's a side-by-side side install. Excellent. Uh, so we are running out of time here at Build. I uh, appreciate you uh, coming by and doing the show with me. Uh, all of us, and especially yourself, are busy here at Build, uh, out on the expo floor, doing sessions, uh, so it's great to have you on the show. It's been my, my absolutely stuff. my pleasure. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to talk about these technologies and uh, hope people enjoy them. Thank you very much. 